Thanks, Helen. That was absolutely lovely worship. There's some amazing three-part harmony <laughs> coming as well. I don't know if you heard it. Okay, so this morning we are doing um, the scripture uh, about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. So if we can just have the um, verses up, please, Yolanda, that would be great because I haven't got them written down and I don't know them. (laughs) Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So um, when I wanted to look at this, um, looking at the woman at the well herself, there's not really a lot um, of detail about her. 
So I thought I would approach this like I approach a part when I'm given a part. Um, what we have to do is we look at what's in the script and then we dig around and we dig down and we create a backstory. Now, there are past masters at this, so I'm going to show you a clip. Um, I don't know if many of you have seen it. Um, has anybody seen The Chosen? Yeah, a couple of hands at the back. If you haven't seen The Chosen, I recommend it highly. It is, it is a backstory um, to Jesus, and it is very moving. Um, so this little clip, it's about eight minutes long, um, is from the woman at the well, from The Chosen. If we can get it. Here we go. Give me a drink. Did you hear me? That bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask her to drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come at noon in the heat. So you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd, I'd still like a drink of water if, if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Wrong story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. 
First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes, it explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. <coughs> I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. 
I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon, just the heart. <laughs> you promise? I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> What is? You forgot your um. Gets me every time that. <clears throat> right. So, we do have to bear in mind that this is plausible invention. Okay. It's not as we. That's why I had us read the scripture first. It's what somebody has read it in. And it's very believable. <clears throat> but bearing that in mind, I've come up with some different thoughts. You have to hold them very lightly because it's what I've read in, um, what I, I've done my background research as much as I can. <clears throat> but it just gives us another take on the story. We know quite a lot about Samaritans. Um, the Samaritan community still exists. Um, it's quite dogmatic. It's similar to the Amish in which that there is not, there's not that many of them. They've lived the same way right from the, the time that they split off from the Jewish community and uh, went to uh, worship at Mount Gerizim. <clears throat> they don't marry outside of their faith. So the result of that is that we can assume with reasonable certainty that what's happening in that community today is the same as it's always been. Um, in fact, I believe that that's how we know how the Jewish sacrifices were made, because they still make sacrifices. Um, I'm going to try and unravel some of the relationships that uh, the Samaritan woman had. So I'm going to start with asking myself what her relationship was with the Jewish community. Um, there was a massive split, as, as most people know, there was a massive split between the Jews and Samaritans. Uh, the big bugbear between them was, um, and still is, that Samaritans considered the holy place in which to worship God was Mount Gerizim, near Sychar, which was the Mount of Blessing mentioned in Deuteronomy 11, 26 to 29. If we can have that up, please. Never mind, I'll read it to you. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today, the curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to pro proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. So the Samaritans broke away from the Jews to, due to disagreements and followed their leader to Mount Gerizim and its regions and its environs. Whereas the Jews felt that the correct place to worship was the temple in Jerusalem. For this reason, each regarded the other as heretical. So Jews would not mix with Samaritans or Samaritans with Jews. To the point where to get to Galilee from Judea, they would take a longer way around so they didn't have to go through Samaria. And if you see there, I've tried to draw where they would have to go from Judea to where Jesus would have gone was straight through. 
um, from, from Judea um, up to Galilee. Um, whereas the, peop- the rest of the Jews would go all the way around, cross the Jordan, uh, and up. So it added quite a lot to the journey. So it would have been quite a big deal. But for the woman at the well, her treatment at the hands of the Jews was even worse than this. Simply because she was a woman, she would have been completely shunned by any Jewish man because she might be menstruating. Even in her own community, a woman during menstruation was not only not allowed to touch her husband and children, but she was not allowed to sit where they might sit or touch any food or vessels that her family might touch. I found this quotation on the internet. And this is rabbinic law. A rabbinic law of AD 66 stated that Samaritan women were considered as continually menstruating and thus unclean all the time. Therefore, a Jew who drank from a Samaritan woman's vessel would become ceremonially unclean. The normal prejudices of the day prohibited public conversation between men and women, between Jews and Samaritans, and especially between strangers. So Jesus had broken all three of those. Samaritan women were considered as menstruating from their cradle. So we can gather from that that the Samaritan woman didn't have a great relationship with her father. Um, I have actually experienced some of this myself. Um, Jonathan and I have, my husband Jonathan and I have a a real interest in the Jewish roots of our faith. Um, So when we went to Venice for a holiday, um, we'd visited the Jewish quarter there. There's quite a large... Um, collection of Hasidic Jews, those are the ones with the, the dark clothes and the side, yeah, they're very um, strict religious sect. Um, and we were wandering the streets and we met a young Jewish man who seemed very happy to talk to us both about his community and his beliefs. We chatted for a while and then I began to notice that every time I asked a question or made a comment, Uh, he would answer it as if it had been asked by Jonathan. He wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't acknowledge me. Anything I said, he looked at Jonathan to answer. When it came time to say goodbye, he shook hands with Jonathan, and when I held out my hand, he wouldn't take it. And he said to Jonathan, we don't touch women out of respect for them. I don't believe him. I think he was afraid of being unclean in case I was menstruating. Um, Also, another time, uh, I was on a plane to Israel. Uh, It was a BA flight, and I sat in the aisle seat. I went and took my seat, and sitting beside me was a very young Jewish man in all the, um, you know, with the uh, beautiful scarves and everything that they have. The minute I sat down, he asked me to get up. He went away. He spoke to the stewardess and got seated elsewhere. So this is quite a big deal. It's quite a big deal. For me, that felt, it was a bit ludicrous, really. It, was, it made me laugh a bit. But I, I did feel a little bit rejected. And I cannot imagine what it must feel like to be treated like that every single day by your community. This is why Jesus speaking to her was such a big deal. Treating her has been con- continually menstruating would have meant that she could not interact with any Jewish man, a stranger, or even people who were not her husband or family. 
Um, Leviticus 15, uh, verses 19 to 27. I don't know if I'm going to read this, actually. (laughs) I always find it quite hard. Whenever a woman has her menstrual period, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Anyone who touches her during that time will be unclean until evening. Anything on which the woman lies or sits during the time of her period will be unclean. If any of you touch her bed, you must wash your clothes and bathe yourself in water, and you will remain unclean until evening. If you touch any object she has sat on, you must wash your clothes and bathe yourself in water, and you will remain unclean until evening. This includes her bed or any other object she has sat on. You will be unclean until evening if you touch it. And it goes on like that. So think of the woman in Luke chapter 8. If we can get Luke chapter 8, verses 43 to 45. In the crowd that day, there was a woman who for 12 years had been afflicted with bleeding. She had spent every penny she had on doctors, but not one had been able to help her. She slipped in from behind and touched the edge of Jesus' robe. At that very moment, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Dozens have touched you. Jesus insisted, someone touch me. I felt power discharging from me. When the woman realized she couldn't remain hidden, she knelt trembling before him. In front of all the people, can you imagine how humiliating that would be? In front of all the people, she blurted out her story, why she touched him, and how at that moment she was healed. This woman, who had been shunned for 12 years because interacting with her would subject a man to hours of ritual cleansing, was unusual in Israel because she was menstruating all the time. But for the Samaritan woman, that is how a Jewish man would treat her and all her female neighbors from her cradle simply because she was Samaritan and a woman. That explains the surprise. In the scripture itself, it says she was surprised that he spoke to her. And it says that the the disciples, when they came upon them, were surprised that he was speaking to her. But the disciples knew Jesus well enough not to ask, why on earth are you talking to her? (laughs) So we'll move on to her relationship with her own community. Um, And I'm going to throw out a curveball here because it's often been said, as it's said in there, that the time that she arrived at the well to collect water must mean that she was an outcast in her own society. That is what they call hermeneutics. It's reading into, it's it's making um, a a reasonable assumption from what's in the Bible. Um, But I'm not so sure that we can say it definitively. Um, But there are things about which we can be fairly certain. The first is that she was collecting the water herself so that we can know that she was not a wealthy woman because if she was wealthy, she would have sent a servant to to do it. So her position in society was not a prominent one. For whatever reason, she was alone at the well during the hottest part of the day. That means either she was indeed an outcast or there was some other reason for her to be there at such an unusual time. Perhaps she was depressed and couldn't get up in the morning. 
Perhaps she was considered cursed, for reasons I'll go into in a moment. Perhaps the man she was with was abusive and had sent her at the, the middle of the day. Or perhaps she just hadn't collected enough water in the morning and needed more than she had. Whatever the truth is, we are not told <laughs> why she was there at that time. I mean, it is easy to go in and say, because we've heard it so often, she was an outcast in society, it's easy to assume that. And it might be true. But I'm just throwing out a curveball here, making us think. But what we can be certain of is that it's what I like to call a God incidence, as opposed to a co coincidence. It was a divine appointment through which many came to accept Jesus as a Messiah. We can accept it was likely that she was outcast by other women. But it doesn't actually say that in the book. The question that I have about that is that if she was outcast by society, when she went running back to tell people about Jesus, why did people listen to her? Surely the men would have just dismissed her. So it's, it's a valid question. I'm not trying to destroy anybody's faith here. <laughs> Just asking questions. Moving on to her relationship with men. Um, it's been frequently taught that she was a woman of loose morals. So this can be backed up by um, what Jesus says when he says, the man you have now is not your husband. That really, there's only one way to interpret that. However, what's been taken from this plus the fact she had five husbands, is that it was somehow her fault that she was a really loose woman. It really depends how we read what Jesus says when he points up that she has five husbands and is now with someone that she's not married to. Is, she, is he saying, you are a sinner and you can't hide it from me? That's how I've read it in the past. But now I'm not so sure. We're not told why she's had five husbands. Maybe they all died. Maybe some died and maybe some divorced her. It isn't said. My own thought is probably that she was a divorcee um, and the, because the Bible often refers to women as widowed when they're widowed, that there was a widow. Um, and it doesn't do that in her case, but that's assumption. So. But whether widowed or divorced, if she had no family home to return to, she would have had no way to live. The only support she could have would be from a man in some way or another. Many women who had no sons or other family to support them would have had to turn to prostitution. There would be no choice. But this woman didn't. She got married five times. So let's suppose that those marriages, just for the sake of argument, ended in divorce. A woman wasn't allowed to divorce her husband. So where the Chosen says she left her seventh, second husband, I think that's very unlikely, personally. She, where would she go? Um, unless it's possible, I suppose, she already had another man in view. But, um, yeah. Um, a woman couldn't divorce her husband, but the Samaritan man, a Samaritan man had in the Pentateuch, they only have the first five books of the Bible, so they have the Pentateuch, um, so uh, not the prophets or, or anything that comes after. But in, in uh, Deuteronomy 24.1, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And then it carries on to say, you know, she can't go back and marry a first husband or whatever. Um, so the indication is that sexual indecency is the only reason a Samaritan man might divorce his wife. And the idea that she was unfaithful to her husband's is then the easiest conclusion. But just what Jesus doesn't say is go and sin no more, like he did to the woman caught in adultery. And he doesn't say your sins are forgiven you, like he does to the woman with the jar of perfume. He just states facts. I don't know where I am. Oh, here we are, page four. You still awake? <laughs> I hope I'm not boring you. But I, I had another thought. The passage tells us that she was alone at the well, so we can infer from that that she had no children, because if she was of low status or outcast and had children, where were they? She wouldn't have had anybody to look after them. Given the times and the importance of maintaining family lines, it's entirely possible that a Samaritan man might divorce her because she was barren. It would be naive to assume that men in those times kept the law to the letter. If he married in her in order to continue his bloodline and she didn't produce children, there's a that's a possible reason for divorce. Barrenness was considered a curse from God. Which brings me to an interesting point. If, it's as, if as is supposed, the Samaritan community today, to all intents and purposes, is still the same as it always has been, then they may have had a problem then that modern Samaritans have. Because there are really not that many of them, and because they intermarry with each other, marriage to a cousin or an uncle is quite common. Then they have problems that occur due to inbreeding. Their children are more susceptible to diseases, and their pregnancies may well result in miscarriage or stillbirth. The current Samaritan community has a shortage of women, which they're trying to counteract by persuading Jewish women to convert. This is just really a supposition, but it would explain why so many men were willing to marry a woman who had been previously married many times. In Jewish law, a woman wasn't supposed to marry more than three times, but the truth of the matter is the whole concept of marriage would be different then to anything we know now. And I have a picture here to show you. Slide three. Got this, I don't know if you can read it, it says, the Samaritans of Nablus, 1900 to 1920, an engaged couple. The groom is about seven years old, the bride about five. So in my storytelling head, this poor woman had gone from husband to husband from the earliest beginning of her childbearing years to its end. And when those years were finally over, no man was willing to marry her, because what would he gain from it? So the man she is currently with might support her while he's getting what he wants, but she has no tie to him to protect her in her old age. With betrothal at age five and marriage presumably following before she starts to menstruate, we can understand better how she might have got through five husbands, um, though it's taken me quite a long time to get through one. And of course, with the shortage of women, some of those husbands might have been quite old. She may even have miscarried or have stillborn children with the interbreeding that must have already been in place. For this, for, this, for me, puts a completely different light on what Jesus says to her. 
You have had five, five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. Shown in this light, it seems to me more compassionate than convicting her of sin. I think he's saying, I know what your life has been like. I know the struggles you have had. You are tired and worn out and have no hope for your future. Here I am. So, perhaps she was more sinned against than sinning. Whatever the reason, Jesus found her important enough to engage with her against all law and tradition. Whether she was a widow or repeatedly a divorcee, it's safe to assume she wasn't a very happy individual. Finally, her relationship to Jesus. Much of it I think I've already covered. He didn't condemn or reject her. He didn't worry about being made unclean himself. He treated her as an intelligent woman. He reached out to her and offered to assuage her spiritual thirst. In a Jewish synagogue, there's a court of women, and the women are not allowed to go beyond it, but they are allowed in the synagogue. But in Samaritan synagogues, the women are not allowed there at all. There's no court of women. They're not allowed to go and worship God because they might be menstruating. So um, it can be reasonably assumed that she must have had a natural hunger for God because she knew about Jacob's well and its significance. She knew the differences between Jewish and Samaritan beliefs. She knew that there was a Messiah to come. And as for Jesus' personal relationship to her, well, as so clearly stated in The Chosen, she was the first person to whom he revealed that he was the long-expected Messiah. So there we have it. I suppose what we can gather from all this is that it's important not to make assumptions about Scripture. Whoever she was, we can be certain she was crushed, invisible, and treated as a second-class citizen, valued only for her potential to produce children. But Jesus saw past all that to her spiritual hunger, saw her, spoke to her, and honored her with his secret. Now, I'm just going to pray for us, and then we can go to our groups. If you are new to Oasis, I believe the welcome group is over there with Caroline leading it. She's waving back there. I don't think I can see any new faces. Um, and the rest of you know where you go. So shall we just pray? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your kindness and compassion to people in need, to people who are hungry and thirsty spiritually and physically. And Lord, we pray that um, whatever thoughts these words have, have brought up, I pray that you will continue teaching us uh, about your love and compassion and help us to serve one another in the same way. In Jesus' name, amen.